Um, this is the second of three webinars on religion in American history and politics. I'm Joe Postel. I teach political science at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, uh, guest emceeing today uh, for the Ashbrook Center. And I'm joined today by uh, distinguished scholars and teachers, Matthew Frank and Jeffrey Sickinga. Uh, Matthew Frank, I'll introduce them both and then we'll, we'll get started right away. Uh, Matthew Frank is director of the William E. and Carol G. Simon Center on Religion and the Constitution at the Witherspoon Institute in Princeton, New Jersey. He's a professor emeritus of political science at Radford University, where he taught from 1989 to 2010. Uh, he's also a visiting lecturer in politics at Princeton University. Jeffrey Sickinga is professor of political science at Ashland University. He's an, he's an adjunct fellow of the John M. Ashbrook Center Ashland University, and he's a senior fellow in the program on constitutionalism and democracy at the University of Virginia. He teaches at the undergraduate and the graduate levels on political thought, the American founding, and constitutional law. Welcome, both of you, and thank you for being here. Thanks. Delighted to be here. Thanks. Uh, so the, the invitation today um, mentioned three recent cases on religion uh, in the Supreme Court, one, the Hobby Lobby case, which just about everybody has heard about and followed, having to do with whether uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, gave Hobby Lobby uh, the, the right to be free from uh, a mandate uh, coming out of the Affordable Care Act uh, having to do with contraception. Uh, the Abercrombie case, which was a Title VII of the Civil Rights Act case about employment discrimination on the basis of religion, and then finally, the Hobbs versus Holt case having to do with the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act uh, and whether um, a prisoner in the Arkansas prison system had the right to be uh, exempt from a ban or a prohibition on growing beards. Now, what's interesting about this is that all three of these cases involve um, practices protected by statute, according to the plaintiffs, and not protected by the First Amendment. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. So I think the opening question, this will help us get into a lot of different topics, I think, is this. Um, why do these cases rely on statutory protections rather than the First Amendment? And what does that shift to statutory protections rather than the First Amendment tell us about um, the current state of the court's jurisprudence on free exercise of religion? I'll throw that out to either panelist who wants to take the first step. Uh, well, I'll go ahead, uh, Joe. Thank you very much uh, for the kind introduction and framing the discussion so well. Yeah, the um, uh, uh, the pattern of jurisprudence on uh, freedom of religion for many years uh, revolved around questions directly uh, tied to that clause of the First Amendment you already quoted, the free exercise of religion. And so th there were all kinds of arguments about what the original meaning or original understanding or original intent of that language was to the framers who wrote it and the ratifier ratifiers who made it part of the Constitution over two centuries ago. Interestingly enough, as some scholars have observed, you know, in, in a lot of areas of constitutional law, there are arguments about uh, originalism versus a living constitution approach. But on the religion clauses, everybody's an originalist. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting mm -hmm. phenomenon, but everyone seems to want to get a hold of their favorite framer or framers and say, well, what this guy said, that's what the First Amendment means. So there are arguments about 
you know, what Jefferson and Madison said versus debates by others in the first Congress and so on. Well, for, uh, for a period of uh, 40 or more years, uh, this was the pattern of arguments in the Supreme Court, uh, in, in intense struggles over the original meaning of the First Amendment. To a large extent, that came to a halt 25 years ago with Oregon uh, Division of Employment versus Smith. This was a, a famous uh, case involving uh, whether some individuals could be exempted from a criminal statute, criminalizing the consumption of peyote, uh, an illegal drug, and they were uh, claiming that they should be exempt for religious reasons from that. And the court, in an opinion uh, uh, written by Justice Antonin Scalia, a great originalist scholar uh, on the Supreme Court, uh, said, no, uh, the First Amendment does not entitle people to exemptions from otherwise valid, generally applicable criminal laws like this peyote statute. Um, now, there's not a huge, you know, peyote consumption lobby in the United States. But there is a, a, a large coalition of persons spanning various religions and various ideological points of view who are very deeply interested in the freedom of religion. And this prompted the passage of something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in 1993, RFRA or RIFRA, as it's often uh, said when people refer to this law. Uh, that law itself uh, uh, was challenged in the Supreme Court, and its, its, its uh, application was limited thereafter, after 1997, to just the federal government and not the state governments. But that, in turn, prompted an act uh, passed, you already mentioned, Joe, in 2000 called ARLUPA, R-L-U-I-P-A, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. And this affects programs uh, involving federal spending, uh, and, uh, and, and the rights of prisoners, and it, that's the institutionalized persons. Uh, so, so the Holt versus Hobbs case that you mentioned involving the Arkansas prisoner who wanted to grow a beard turned out then not to be based at all directly on the First Amendment, but on these statutory rights. Similarly, Hobby Lobby was based on the federal RIFRA, the R Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and of course the Abercrombie and Fitch case, uh, involving the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission came out of a, an even older statute, much revised in the last half century, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Title VII. So it seems it's interesting, but, you know, we have all our arguments over religious, free, excuse me, religious freedom these days based on these statutes because they seem to supply a greater degree of protection for religious freedom than current Supreme Court understanding of the First Amendment does especially when it comes to people who want to be relieved of legal requirements that would generally apply if they didn't have some religious conscience objection. Mm -hmm. that, that's, a very, that's a really very thorough, careful, and thoughtful summary. The only thing I would add to that is it just shows you um, a simple basic point. Um, we often think of law, uh, the question of laws contravening constitutional rights. Here's a great example of law sort of adding to, uh, statutory law adding to protections of constitutional rights, as, as Matt was just saying. And the, it, it also, I think, has changed to some degree the character, although this is clearly arguable, the character, the way that the court approaches these uh, religious freedom cases, typically, and justices themselves have said this, 
if a case involves statutory law, the court might be more willing to make an interpretation that um, pushes boundaries a little bit, because if they're wrong, Congress can, of course, change the law and therefore overrule their decision, because it's a decision based just on the law, and if Congress changes the law, they can change the decision. If it's a constitutional interpretation, the court, at least just some justices on the court, have said they're more likely to be circumscribed in their understanding of the rights involved. Um, Oregon v. Smith being, as Matt said, a classic example of that. So statutory law, the fact that it's at play here shows that there's more than just the Supreme Court is involved in interpreting the Constitution. Congress has taken on a big role here, and that has led the court perhaps to be um, fuller in its understanding or its willingness um, to promote a certain understanding of religious freedom. Hmm. I think that's a valuable point, if I could just follow up. It, it is good to be reminded um, that uh, the court is not the only protector of our freedoms. Um, it, it, it may consider itself the guardian of the Constitution, but as Jeff said, uh, if Congress wants to augment or supplement the protections of law that are available uh, in courts of law, on constitutional grounds, they can do so by statute. It is interesting uh, that um, uh, this has uh, relieved us of, uh, uh, of having to listen to re- rehearsals yet again of uh, a- evidence from two centuries ago of what the framers thought about religious freedom. The arguments are confined to the terms of these statutes, and in certain respects, they're, uh, uh, they have these statutes have resurrected some of the terms of art and legal categories that the Supreme Court itself invented in the period from the early 60s until the Smith case. Things like uh, whether the law substantially burdens religious exercise, whether a compelling interest is being pursued by the government, whether it's being pursued in the least restrictive setting, and so on. And, uh, and these are now embedded in Act of Congress which could, of course, uh, you know, be rewritten, strengthened, weakened, dispensed with in some cases. Uh, all that sort of thing is, is possible. So I suppose if, if Oregon v. Smith is the, uh, is the decision which kind of sets up and sets into motion a lot of these cases that are coming down the road now, the larger question is, um, was Scalia right about uh, the First Amendment in Oregon v. Smith, and um, maybe what what was he relying on? Because you know, Matt, you mentioned everyone has their favorite founder on the First Amendment, um, and different founders say different things about the relationship between religion and uh, government. So, from where did Scalia get this argument in Oregon v. Smith that you don't have a right to be exempt from a generally applicable law? And, and was that a really a sound interpretation of the First Amendment? That, that's a question for either panelist, I suppose. <clears throat> well, let me take a shot at just a part of that question, Joe. Um, a lot of that decision is uh, in Oregon v. Smith is taken from a previous uh, 19th century decision, uh, Reynolds versus United States, a uh, case. Uh, it's the uh, Mormon polygamy case uh, where Congress passed a law regulating the territories, saying uh, outlawing bigamy or polygamy. And um, Mr. Reynolds was in good conscience uh, a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, and which required polygamy uh, if it were possible under the circumstances. He said uh, that he, he took an additional wife or wanted to, and um, 
that was he raised the claim of religious freedom, of free exercise, and the court sided against him in favor of the United States, uh, essentially holding that there was no constitutional right to more than uh, to plural marriage, and there was no therefore the law was certainly reasonable, it wasn't affecting constitutional right, and there was no right to be exempt from the law because of one's religious conscience. And they, it, the court concluded that opinion, I think it was in 1878, if I'm not mistaken, they it concluded that opinion by saying, um, to hold otherwise would be to not to have a law protect conscience, but to put conscience above the law. And Scalia cites that case um, fairly heavily as an important precedent in the Oregon v. Smith case. That's that's right. Jeff Jeff is is right to remember that case as as a pivotal part of the argument Scalia made 25 years ago. Uh, he singled out one uh, statement from the Reynolds case that I recall, uh, in which the court uh, in 1879, I think it was, uh, said uh, this would be to make every man a law unto himself. That is because uh, almost almost any uh, restriction on conduct, uh, even important criminal statutes, could conceivably uh, come under scrutiny in the case of a person who claims, sincerely perhaps, uh, that his religion requires him to do the very thing the law forbids. And uh, if we honor and, uh, and respect and, and uh, permit every such claim to prevail, uh, then, as uh, as the Chief Justice said in the Reynolds case in the 19th century, every man becomes a law unto himself. Scalia said this was intolerable. Now, there's still there's an ongoing uh, debate about the correctness or incorrectness of the Smith decision uh, of 1990. Scholars have ranged themselves on both sides. Uh, very eminent scholars, Michael McConnell of Stanford, uh, says that Smith was wrongly decided. That there's evidence from the founding that uh, the framers and ratifiers of the First Amendment wanted courts to make exemptions from other, otherwise universally applied statutes. Uh, Philip Hamburger, uh, who I think is at Columbia Law School, a very eminent scholar, uh, contradicts McConnell, says, no, no, uh, uh, there's no evidence that an exemptions jurisprudence was part of the thinking of the 19th century. Exemptions statutes might have made sense. That is Congress saying, for instance, that Quakers don't have to uh, respond to conscription laws, the draft. Uh, but to put the court in charge of saying, you know, when religious freedom turns a law on and when it turns it off, uh, this uh, uh, is an implausible account of the founding. Frankly, I find myself, you know, more sympathetic to Hamburger's view than McConnell's, and so I'm inclined to think that Smith is basically correct. But there is an interesting sort of gap in Scalia's Smith opinion, where he he seems to leave us with the conclusion that the only cases in which the court will step up and defend the free exercise of religion are those cases in which a law directly and almost purposefully attacks religion as such, uh, which suggests that there are no statutes not directly targeting religion that can ever be considered to be, in some collateral way, important infringements of religious freedom uh, worthy of being overturned on First Amendment grounds. That's a, that's a disturbing sort of side effect 
of Smith that I think may need to be uh, addressed by people going back to revisit the logic of the case. Yeah, and and of course, as as a dissent, I think it was a 5-4 decision in Oregon v. Smith. And as the dissent points out, um, it it rendered it, it the opinion Scalia's opinion tried to try to distinguish itself from an earlier line of cases um, like the 1963 Sherbert v. Verner case on exemptions uh, for unemployment by saying, well, this law in Oregon was a generally applicable criminal statute. And so the previous line of cases saying, uh, for example, that a person um, in the Sherbert case, a person who didn't want, who wasn't able because of their religious beliefs to be available for work on a Saturday still could draw unemployment insurance. They weren't in contradiction to the ordinance um, that said they had to be available on those days. And so the, the court allowed that exemption in 63 and the Oregon v. Smith case said that's fine, but that's unemployment compensation. It's not a generally applicable criminal law and tried to disassociate itself from that earlier line of precedence. The dissent in the, that case um, pointed out that it wasn't clear why there was a distinction between those two kinds of things. And I think some scholars have questioned whether or not Smith effectively overruled the, the Sherbert case or um, if at least called into question that line of jurisprudence. Yeah, yeah. it's certainly, certainly the case that Congress thought that the line of cases from Sherbert versus Verner, 1963, through Wisconsin versus Yoder, mm -hmm. the case from Wisconsin involving the Amish uh, and their right to keep their children uh, out of school after a certain age for religious reasons, uh, despite the law's requirement, that Congress thought that, that the line of cases from Sherbert through Wisconsin versus Yoder up to Smith uh, had all been correct interpretations of the First Amendment. And, they, and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 was an attempt by Congress to restore the pre-Smith jurisprudence that had prevailed for 27 years um, and, uh, and, and, and they, they succeeded only in imposing, reimposing those earlier standards of jurisprudence, making exemptions to otherwise universal laws, uh, only in, in the case of federal law, uh, but not in the case of state law, because of a decision the court made that RIFRA could not reach state laws in 1997 in the city of Bernie versus Flores. Um, so we, uh, we have this sort of a patchwork now where it, Arguably, um, uh, religious freedom is more strongly protected for claimants against the federal government than uh, it is for claimants against state governments, except in those narrow areas like prisoners and penitentiaries who are affected by RELUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. Or in, uh, you know, people might be protected more strongly against their state governments in states that have passed their own state-level religious freedom laws. Like so, sometimes they're called baby RIFRAs or state RIFRAs, Religious Freedom Restoration Acts at the state level. This is a, the sort of thing that's been much on people's minds uh, as uh, same-sex marriage has spread across the country and is now national, uh, it seems, 
uh, as a result of the Obergefell decision of, of this past June. You know, what, what sort of protections will people and, and institutions have if they want to dissent or want an exemption from requirements that they consider same-sex couples married under the new dispensation of things? Will they be protected by state RIFRAs? Will they get some protection from federal RIFRAs? Um, these things are very much up in the air as we go forward. forward. Yeah, I think the only thing that we know um, based on precedent uh, is laws that target religion, laws, local, state, or federal laws that target religion uh, directly. Uh, the court held in 93 in the uh, Church of Lakumi Babalu I uh, against Hialeah from Miami area that those laws are um, uh, unconstitutional infringements of free exercise. But those, that's a very unusual situation. I, I think you, don't usually, you almost never see laws like that with direct reference to religion or ritual practice. So I suspect, yeah, I think Matt's right on that, that now you have a situation where if states or localities pass laws like that, there would be Supreme Court precedent striking those down. But beyond that, yeah, you might have more, you do have more protection at the federal level because RIFRA is not applying to state and localities. Except so doesn't, that, said, doesn't that raise a kind of a, a really deep fundamental question here, which is, um, do these categories ultimately break down because they don't actually work in practice? The, the distinction between, say, directly targeting religion versus indirectly um, since it's very rare for a generally applicable law to directly target religion, but we can think of all kinds of generally applicable laws that clearly get at religion in some way, does, is there really a problem then with the distinction itself? Uh, and if that is a problem, is there a better, is there a solution or a better alternative to the one that the court has come up with? Well, that's a really, that's a really great question, Joe. Um, it's something I've been trying to grapple with myself in in recent months, uh, trying to work through uh, this this very problem. Um, you know, when we when we see cases like Holt versus Hobbs uh, or Hobby Lobby, where statutes uh, uh, offer this protection, we can say, well, you know, uh, thanks to those statutes, uh, laws or policies that that have a sort of collateral effect not targeting religion, but somehow um, uh, impinging on people's consciences uh, without, so to speak, meaning to do so. Uh, th those statutes can help us out. You know, uh, Arkansas had a policy that all uh, prisoners in the men's penitentiary had to be clean shaven. Um, they made an exception, however, for people who with a skin condition uh, needed not to shave for health or medical reasons. Uh, and they let them grow a quarter inch beard. And this Muslim prisoner, um, uh, uh, Holt, I think, was, was the prisoner and Hobbes the warden, if I remember correctly. Uh, Holt said, no, no, uh, I, for religious reasons, I want to grow this beard. Well, the, you know, the, the policy of the prison didn't, didn't attack religion. It didn't say, you know, we're not going to let Muslims or Jews, for that matter, uh, you know, grow any, grow any beards. Uh, they uh, they had a policy 
that restricted hair length, that put people in prison uniforms. They wanted a sort of a regimented life, and they also uh, expressed a concern about the concealment of contraband, contraband weapons, contraband telephone SIM cards uh, that could be concealed. Um, but this, uh, this fellow, uh, only wanted to grow. He said, I'll compromise. I'll only grow a half inch beard, not a big bushy one that I can hide stuff in. And, uh, and the warden still wouldn't let him do it. Uh, and the court, I think quite reasonably said, look, if you're going to let people grow a beard for medical reasons, you got to let this guy, uh, grow a beard that is no more a danger to uh, the rest of the prison population than the hair on his head, which you already let everyone grow longer than a half an inch, right? If you're talking, if you're worried about where people conceal things, we notice that you're not making everyone shave their heads and go naked. And Matt, and I would add to that too, what was interesting about that case to me is that the court explicitly held that um, it was the individual prisoner's interpretation of Islam that that he believed required the half-inch beard um, that the court deferred to, because one of the arguments that was made in Amicus was that look, it's not a universal tenet of Islam that Muslim men have to have beards, and the court held well that doesn't matter. You don't have to. You don't. The individual make asserting the um, argument for exemption does not have to prove that their beliefs are consistent with the with the universal or generally shared beliefs of the religion that they conscientiously subscribe to. So it wasn't. It's not only the religious claim, but the individual conscience interpretation of that religion that was being protected there. So I thought that was quite, kind of an interesting ruling. They'd held that in a previous case. But they reasserted that here, which I think adds protection, obviously, to the individual's assertion of conscience. You know, that's that's very important, Jeff. The uh, um, Arlupa, <clears throat> the law that was used in Holt versus Hobbes, actually went back and uh, uh, revised or amended some of the language in the earlier uh, RIFRA statute of 1993. So that now both of those statutes say that any claim, any sincerely advanced claim of religious free exercise will be respected. They they will make an inquiry to make sure that it's sincere, but if it's sincere, it will be respected even if the claim does not seem to the court to be central to a particular religion's belief, or uh, even if, as you say, not every adherent to that faith uh, would make the same choice. So not every Muslim is bearded. By the way, if we go back to Hobby Lobby, which was based on a Christian business owner's sincere objection to the contraception mandate uh, under Obamacare, uh, that contraception be covered because it covered uh, drugs and devices known to have an abortifacient effect, preventing the implantation of uh, of the the unborn zygote. Uh, well, it's it's worth it's worth noticing that not everyone who professes to be a Christian is even anti-abortion, is even pro-life all the way down on the abortion issue. So the, the court uh, is, is perfectly willing to accept um, uh, a, a self-selected Christian's argument that his pro-life convictions bound up with his religious conscience require this response to the law, even where other Christians 
uh, might have a different view. But let me come back to the, the way Joe framed the question before I got off, got us off uh, maybe on, on, on Holt versus Hobbes. Um, it is interesting that, you know, that, that, that Congress has stepped in to provide what the Supreme Court seemingly won't provide under the First Amendment these days, which is protection for religion, even when it's not directly under attack. Um, an alternative for the Supreme Court might be to go back and re-examine one of its now fairly venerable cases uh, in this area, and that's the uh, Jehovah's Witness flag salute case of 1943, West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett. This was a case in which uh, children from uh, Jehovah's Witness families uh, complained that they were being made to salute the flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance, which was contrary to their religion's requirement that they not worship graven images, as the Bible says. And, and so uh, the Supreme Court in 1943, reversing an earlier decision they'd made in a Pennsylvania case from 1940, said, yes, that's, that claim must be respected. But here's what, what happened that was very interesting. The court converted the religious freedom claim into a free speech claim and then said, no one can be required to salute the flag by law. No one can be made to say the Pledge of Allegiance. So they didn't carve out an exemption from a requirement that continued to apply to everyone else. They simply struck down the law as such. This strikes me as uh, uh, maybe very interesting uh, uh, basis to go back to, to reconsider some of our current religious freedom jurisprudence. We don't have to convert the claim in West Virginia versus Barnett from a religion claim into a free speech claim. And yet we could still, while considering it a religion claim, take the option of striking down the law as such in cases strongly implicating religious freedom, even though religion is not targeted, rather than leaving the law in place and carving out exemptions, which seems to be a rather dicey kind of policy making for judges to do. Yeah, you can, Joe, if I can just add to that, it, it, to go back to your question, as Matt was just alluding to, it, it is a, you said, is there any real distinction between laws that target religion, like in the Hialeah case, and then laws that just are generally applicable, but have a substantial, place a substantial burden on the exercise of religion? And it, it raises the very tri tricky question that the court has dealt with on the other side of the religion clauses, which is the establishment clause, of what constitutes compulsion and being compelled to act against your conscience. Um, and there's, that's a, you know, as the case like Lee versus Weissman, um, that decision shows, that's a very tricky business to get into. When, when is a person being compelled by the law to act against their conscience? For example, do they need to first assert a claim that their conscience pro prohibits this, or should, should the law or action take account of the possibility that it might be compu compelling people before it even tries to act? There's lots of, uh, a lot of complications when you get into the business of determining uh, whether an individual is being compelled by a law or whether they feel like they're being compelled by a law. And maybe that is one of the reasons why the, the court has tried to limit the uh, free exercise clause to laws that target religion. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so there are two questions, and I think some of it has been um, addressed a little bit at this point, but maybe I'll raise them and see if we can push them a little further. The first is um, in response to Matt's suggestion about Barnett versus West Virginia, which is I, I find very intriguing. I've never heard this before. Um, you know, they could have made it into an exemption for the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses as opposed to saying um, the whole law itself is to be struck down. But the question then becomes, how do you carve out that exemption um, in in a way that doesn't then make it a rush to the courts to get exemptions in all of these other cases? And then that seems to raise the second question, which I think is what Jeff was just pointing out. If the court starts to then acknowledge certain practices and give them preferential treatment through this process of granting exemptions, does that run into the Establishment Clause problem, which is, are you starting to tend towards an establishment of religion when you say these people get preferential treatment? Um, because the Establishment Clause jurisprudence says, you know, government has to sort of be blind to, it can't prefer one religion over another. And isn't it then, if it starts to grant these accommodations, preferring one religion over another, or preferring religion as such in all of its various forms to those who don't have um, religious uh, faiths or practices. Yeah, I, th th that's that's good to recall that that the the other half of the single religion clause, or the other religion clause, if you say that there are two, uh, can be interpreted in ways that seem to cut in the other direction. Um, it's possible that Justice Scalia in the Smith case was concerned about a, uh, a practice that had developed on the court of uh, granting exemptions here and exemptions there, and thus um, uh, seeming to run afoul of a kind of uh, neutrality proposition that's built into the Establishment Clause, that the government be neutral between various religious dispensations. But I, I think that, that that can be pushed too far if we say, as, as you did towards the end of your question there, Joe, that we mustn't prefer religion as such. I, I would say that, that, that the best interpretation of the whole singular religion clause or the two clauses taken together, if you read them as two clauses, is that uh, the First Amendment does commit the United States government to be friendly to religion as such, as long as it is neutral between Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and other dispensations, or among the various sects of Christianity alone, which is largely what the country was two centuries ago. Um, now, you know, it, 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 maybe it makes a difference if it's Congress doing the exempting rather than the courts doing the exempting. Uh, no one, I think, ever believed from the late 18th century onward that the United States was establishing the Quaker faith when it granted Quakers exemption from militia service, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and yet we've always done that with the so-called peace churches. We don't make Quakers or Amish or Mennonites uh, serve in the military against their will. Although I should point out that um, it's a, it's, it's a mis misnomer or a mistake to believe that all Quakers are pacifists or you know, even perhaps all, all Mennonites are Amish. Uh, I happen to have a, a Quaker dad. My father is a is a is a Quaker of you know of, of Philadelphia stock, and uh, and he served in the Air Force. So uh, they're they're not all to a person pacifists, but they a are fighting Quaker. They are and always pardon me. A fighting Quaker. A fighting Quaker. That's right. A fighting Quaker. Um, fighter pilot, no less. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, 
but but Quakers have always been granted this dispensation by act of Congress, and maybe that's the difference. So here's so here's an interesting question: When Congress makes discrete exemptions, exemptions for conscientious objection for certain uh, religious points of view, or uh, perhaps it might uh, exempt the Amish from paying social security taxes by law, not by by court decision. Uh, that that seems uh, everyone would agree, I believe, that that's honoring uh, peculiar and distinctive religious claims in the law in a way that is uh, careful and discretionary on Congress's part. Uh, but if Congress does what it did in RIFRA and ARLUPA and what state legislatures have done in state RIFRAs, if they say, well, we want a kind of general exemptions approach, but we, the legislators, don't want to have to identify ex every exemption that needs to be made. We want courts to do it. Doesn't that just recapitulate the problem that Scalia was identifying in Smith of allowing individuals to come to courts and be effectively a law unto themselves, notwithstanding choices that have been made by the legislature? Yeah, I, I I would agree with what Matt just said about the, the tension between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. I think properly interpreted, there is no tension. If you interpret them, as Matt said, as um, in the plainest terms, the Establishment Clause forbidding uh, compelling people to practice certain, government compelling people to practice certain, to believe certain things or to practice um, certain beliefs. And if you say the free exercise clause is the flip side of that same coin, saying government can, cannot compel people not to practice, uh, believe certain things, or practice certain beliefs. If you understand it that way, there is a, there is a room for accommodation of free exercise that does make government friendly, in effect, friendly to religion. But what it's really doing, of course, is being friendly to an individual's exercise of their own conscience, uncompelled uh, exercise of their own conscience. And my, on, on this, you know, the court does, in the, in the Hobbes case, for example, the court does assert a, a very clear, um, the, the opinion asserts by Alito, a very clear process by which one can adjudicate these claims. Now, whether it's appropriate for courts or whether in the old, you know, we have to go back to the old days of Quakers petitioning legislatures, um, the, but the process itself is fairly clear, right? It starts out by saying, Alito says that, first of all, the burden is on the petitioner to show that this is a sincerely held belief and that belief is being substantially burdened. The practice of that belief is being substantially burdened. Then once that is asserted and accepted, the burden shifts to government to then say, well, there's a compelling interest for that burden, and we are um, adopting the least restrictive means possible on that practice to achieve that compelling interest. So that's, a, that's a, at least there's a conceptual clarity and regularity to that assertion so that not everything is, you know, not everything is therefore allowed. Um, you don't have to allow child sacrifice under the guise of religion, as the court said in Reynolds. Um, it simply doesn't follow. You can, you can have standards by which compelling state interests, for example, in the protection of life, public safety, public health, um, public morals, public welfare, there's all kinds of police power 
interests that governments have that courts would rec recognize as compelling, it's a, always a bit tricky and prudential to decide, is that the least restrictive means possible? But those are factual findings that reasonable people can come to some conclusion on. So I, don't, I tend not to think that Pandora's box is opened if you allow a wide accommodation of individual conscience. I don't think it results in establishment of religion, and I don't think that it's impossible practically. I think it is a good question whether it should be done by legislatures or courts, though. Yeah. Here we have the curious situation where it's being done by courts because legislatures decided they wanted it done that way, right. which is okay, I guess, you know, as long as, yeah. as, long as the legislature is happy about it. Um, you know, we haven't talked about the, the Abercrombie and Fitch case. Maybe it, it could serve to illustrate some of this uh, friendliness towards conscience claims that, that Jeff was just speaking of. Uh, here we had a case uh, where uh, the federal government applying employment discrimination laws, which have been in place for uh, a half century since the 1964 Civil Rights Act, uh, were brought to bear in, in a case involving um, a, a young Muslim woman who wanted to wear a headscarf uh, on on the job. Uh, the, the the facts of the case are, are kind of kind of intricate, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds. But what's what's in interesting about it is that she applied for a job with the retailer Abercrombie and Fitch to be a store clerk, and she was wearing a headscarf during her interview. And uh, the interviewer did not ask her about why she was wearing it, um, but the evidence shows surmise she was probably Muslim and was probably therefore wearing it for that reason, went to a supervisor and said, you know, I think we have a Muslim applicant here, but I haven't asked her about this. And the supervisor said, well, don't hire her. We have what's called a look policy. That is, we want all our people on the job to, to dress a certain way and, and, and not to wear anything on their heads. Uh, and so she was, she was not hired. She, it's not that she had a job she lost. She simply wasn't hired. And uh, uh, when she found out you know, that, that, that she hadn't been hired and, and, and she suspected the reason was Oh, I'm a Muslim woman in a headscarf, uh, and I and I didn't get the job because of this this dress code on uh, at the retailer. Uh, she went to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the federal agency that polices this business of employment discrimination, and on her behalf, the EEOC sued this big national retailer, Abercrombie and Fitch. Uh, well, when the Supreme Court finally heard the case, uh, they decided that it you know it really didn't matter that Abercrombie and Fitch didn't have the certain knowledge that she was a Muslim and wore a headscarf for that reason. Uh, it was enough to show that their suspicion that she was a Muslim entered in as a sort of controlling variable to their decision not to hire her. Uh, and so they, and so they were liable. They, uh, they, they have, they have to, uh, they have to pay a penalty for this. I think they, they either had to hire her or give her back pay or, or, or whatever. Uh, but uh, but it's it's very interesting now now under Title VII, a law the federal government has uh, has, has uh, enforced against employers in the private sector. Uh, affected employers under Title VII have to be very careful to be friendly towards the religious diversity that we have in this country, or they may run afoul of this new precedent in the Abercrombie and Fitch case. 
Yeah, and what's interesting, I don't know if it's ironic, but at least interesting, uh, Scalia wrote that opinion. That's right. The same person who wrote, of course, the Smith, the Oregon v. Smith decision. That's right. That's right. And he actually gets a little criticized by, uh, uh, I think it was a unanimous case, actually, uh, as Holt versus Hobbes was. Uh, But there are some concurring opinions that say, well, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not sure uh, uh, that the standard has been enunciated in the best possible way by Justice Scalia. He may have introduced uh, some difficulties uh, we don't want to employ, uh, impose on employers in, in cases like this. Uh, but that's right. Uh, using a statute rather than the First Amendment to the Constitution, Scalia is just as inclined to be very, very friendly to religious claims uh, as any other justice on the court. So I think the the conversation here on the accommodations point um, has actually reached a really nice uh, conclusion that I hadn't really thought of before we engaged in this conversation about, you know, if you set up the process the right way, the way that the legislature is done, you can actually do this in a, in a sort of orderly fashion. But that brings up what's, um, what's coming down the road. Uh, you know, if the dispensation for accommodations is now coming from Congress through this process, the inevitable question is, what are the kinds of claims we're likely to start to see both through um, this process and then as it becomes litigated in the Supreme Court? What, what, are, what do you see as the future issues that are going to start to come up? And then that brings up a question from uh, one of uh, the members of our audience here about um, if Congress is allowing for these accommodations to be uh, adjudicated this way, how, how do you prevent the law from devolving into a sort of sect-based jurisprudence in which con- or which the courts are looking at different uh, faiths and trying to evaluate the faiths themselves. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question uh, about uh, so-called sect-based jurisprudence. It's a nice way to put it. Um, you know, the uh, under the current statutes that seem to govern most of our freedom of religion jurisprudence now, uh, the courts are obliged to take heed of. Uh, an amazing variety of uh, religious claims, uh, often for exemption or for solicitous treatment under the law. Uh, And it it may be that in practical terms, a kind of uh, carefully wrought exemptions jurisprudence of the kind Jeff described a few minutes ago uh, is the best way forward through this thicket because at least exemptions-based jurisprudence does leave in place the general policies that legislatures and executive branch agencies have chosen to lay down um, and limited um, uh, uh, gaps are opened up in the application of those laws for reasons of conscience. I think on the immediate horizon, we're going we're gonna to see uh, we're going to see the issues in the Hobby Lobby case come back to the Supreme Court probably this term, which begins Monday, uh, first Monday in October, the Supreme Court begins its annual term. And probably in the next several weeks, we'll find out that they're going to take another one of these HHS mandate, uh, contraception mandate cases. Because ever since Hobby Lobby, the litigation has been ongoing between uh, the government and another class of plaintiffs, not private, for-profit corporations like Hobby Lobby owned by religious plaintiffs, but uh, religiously affiliated institutions that are currently getting what the government calls a kind of accommodation under the statute. 
but which uh, organizations like Wheaton College and University of Notre Dame and the Little Sisters of the Poor say is no accommodation at all because they're still drawn into a complicity with an evil uh, that their conscience objects to. Um, most of the cases have gone the government's way in, in, uh, in, in this field until just uh, a little over two weeks ago, on September 17th, uh, the Eighth Circuit came down the other way, causing a split among the circuit courts that the Supreme Court will, will most likely have to resolve here. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's definitely coming. Um, obviously, the, the issue of, um, uh, which I see has been raised by some of our uh, participants, the issue of, especially now after the, the gay uh, marriage case ruling, the issue of um, private businesses um, refusing to um, provide certain services, um, like photographer, uh, the photographer from New Mexico or the Oregon bakery, those cases will certainly now um, wouldn't, won't be surprising at all to see those cases come. You can see the court anticipating that a little bit. Um, if you, if you, for example, in the Hobby Lobby case, concurrence uh, points out, yes, fine, we can accept this exemption, but this does. And the court itself, I think, actually says at the end of its opinion, but this does not does this does not mean necessarily that religious exemption would allow someone to be exempt from generally applicable anti-discrimination laws. Right. Uh, they, they just leave that question open without saying it. And then I, I noticed that um, in the Hobbs v. Holt case, I think it was Ginsburg and Sotomayor who concurred and said, unlike Hobby Lobby, the exemption for the prisoner with the beard does not um, detrimentally affect others who don't share his beliefs. And you could see them, of course, this is such a recent case, you could see almost in their minds thinking ahead, ah, but if religious claims of religious exercise and exemption from that detrimentally harm others, we're not going to allow it. And they wanted to say that in their concurrence to make that clear in what was otherwise a unanimous decision. That's so right, those, right. Those, those questions, I think that'll be one kind of question that's coming. Another question will be, what about people who make a claim of religious conscience that these are sincere beliefs, but they are not consistently practicing those beliefs? Hmm. So, so as an example, um, what about someone who says, it is my sincere Christian belief, um, because of my sincere Christian belief, I, I refuse to provide uh, photography services for gay wedding, and then um, it's revealed at trial that they also don't believe in remarriage after divorce, but they've done uh, photography for remarriages after divorce, so they haven't consistently practiced their beliefs. That's going to get the court, uh, courts, as you can imagine, into uh, a pretty deep thicket. Yeah. No, I think that's. I think that's right. Um, I would add that uh, one of the most interesting aspects of the same-sex marriage case, Obergefell versus Hodges, decided uh, at the end of June this year, is that the case itself has nothing to do with religion. There's, there's no freedom of religion uh, aspect to the case. No issues were raised regarding that um, uh, by the parties. 
the case was a, a, a pure question of whether the Constitution secures to same-sex couples a right to have their unions recognized and licensed as marriages by their states. And the court said yes. Nonetheless, although religion doesn't enter into the case at all, all five opinions in the case talk about religion. Justice Kennedy for the majority and all four dissents by Roberts, Scalia, Thomas, and Alito, they all talk about this. Now, what's going on there? What's going on is that they all see these conflicts looming on the horizon. The dissenters all say, watch out for the impact of this case on people's sincere religious conscience claims to dissent from the new normal on the laws of marriage, because they know there are many, many millions of Americans of various faith traditions who believe that marriage is only between a man and a woman, and these are not real marriages. They're going to want to dissent from this. And the dissenters in the Obergefell case say, watch out. These people are going to be uh, have their consciences impinged upon. Uh, Justice Alito, who doesn't directly mention religion, he, but he does say, uh, we will watch, we, we watch for it. We can see in the future people who dissent from today's decision will have their dissent stamped out by the new legal order that the majority is establishing. And so Justice Kennedy, for the Obergefell majority, actually feels obliged to enter a disclaimer that no one's religious freedom will be impinged upon as a result of this case. He says, look, people can continue to believe what they want to believe, worship as they want to worship, and do what they want in their homes and churches. To which Chief Justice Roberts said, hey, you know what Justice Kennedy fails to mention? Free exercise of religion, which is much more than freedom of worship. So all of the justices of the court are, you might say, primed for a conflict that will arrive in future. And, and Matt, can I ask you a question? What's your reading in that situation of the importance then of um, the Hobby Lobby case? Because yeah, there you have to be in the majority. Yeah, uh, right. Kennedy was in the majority. Um, uh, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. Uh, that was a 5-4 case, and same-sex marriage was a 5-4 case, and Kennedy was in the majority in both, one year apart. So now the question becomes, uh, does Justice Kennedy, uh, look, everyone will understand that, that uh, sincere claims of a su substantial burden are present, but will Justice Kennedy turn on a dime on what you identified earlier as the compelling interest component of this jurisprudence? Will he conclude that because the state has a compelling interest an interest, by the way, that he just manufactured in the same-sex marriage ruling. But Willie said that the state has a compelling interest to have same-sex marriages recognized, and there is no less restrictive manner of having those marriages recognized than to have universal recognition by employers, by schools, uh, by uh, charities, by nonprofits, you name it, by, by, by businesses uh, serving the public, uh, he may conclude that there is there is a compelling interest and there's no less restrictive fashion of effectuating that interest than to impose a duty of recognition on all persons who encounter couples with marriage licenses. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, 
it, because it, the, the duty of recognition, um, I'm thinking about his, his opinion in the, in the Obergefell case, a lot of it rests on the right of same-sex people, as he understands it, not to be demeaned by the laws of their states and be told that their unions are less worthy of legal recognition than um, opposite-gendered people. Um, I wonder if he would read refusal to be served by a business as a demeaning of that individual or whether he would read the individual business person being forced to supply a service as demeaning of them and their exercise of religion. And I wonder if it'll come down to that for people like him. This will depend in part on what state actors want to do, that is, uh, agents of state governments and local governments. Uh, there is not yet, at the federal level, um, any civil rights legislation uh, that recognizes uh, sexual orientation or same-sex marital status as a protected category in uh, discrimination law. Uh, there, of course, since Obergefell, the pressure is on Congress uh, by groups on the left uh, to pass such legislation. I think there's something called the Equality Act. On the other side, there are conservatives led by Senator Mike Lee of Utah trying to protect people's right to dissent from the new normal on marriage called the, Freedom, uh, the First Amendment Defense Act. So those two bills are, are pending in Congress right now, and we'll see how that comes out. But a lot of this is going to happen at the state level, as it already has with the photographer and baker cases. And if state human rights commissions or state legislatures or local government want to impose this duty of recognition in the private sector on businesses, on employers, on landlords, on schools and universities, uh, that, I think, is where we're going to start to see the conflict bubble up that, uh, that will eventually arrive uh, in the chambers of Justice Kennedy. <laughs> so just to maybe pull back a little bit from this um, to help me see this a little bit more clearly, does this mean that the, you know, the, the Obergefell case has introduced all kinds of new questions um, and we're not sure how they're going to be resolved? Does this mean that the best mo mode of resolution is not just, say, at the state level, but also a legislative solution, some sort of modification of RIFRA to deal with the question of businesses now and what they have to recognize in carrying out their business? Or are we back to sort of the revisiting Oregon to see, Oregon v. Smith, to see if um, there's a constitutional issue here that needs to be resolved through that route? And then I guess the third question, it's just been raised by one of our audience members, is does this then get into questions of freedom of speech? And if so, how do those things get resolved by the Supreme Court? Hmm. Wow. Good questions all. I, I, I think that um, as to your 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 uh, your own first questions, Joe, I think we have to do both. We have to we have to think all all branches of government and all institutions of government are responsible for upholding and respecting the Constitution. I I, I I've spent a lot of my time talking about how we should not simply hand over the interpretation of the Constitution to courts of law and say, you know, judicial supremacy is the answer to all our problems. Congress must be involved. State governments, to the extent that they can make a positive contribution, have to be involved. But that means that actual, you know, uh, interest groups get, get in the thick of this too. Uh, and struggles take place in legislatures to get this right. 
to uh, to honor the con uh, sometimes conflicting imperatives of equality on the one side and freedom on the other. It may be freedom of religion, it may be freedom of speech, but on the other side is ranged this new competing interest of recognition of a certain kind of equality with respect, say, to same-sex unions, or maybe you know the next thing will be polyamorous unions. Who knows? Um, so I think legislatures do have to be involved, but uh, but maybe maybe courts too. Uh, I, I'd like to see the court perhaps revisit some aspects of Smith, and and, and ask itself whether uh, there aren't um, uh, unintentional or inadvertent impingements on religious conscience and practice that can be addressed under the rubric of the First Amendment. Uh, uh, as for uh, uh, I'm sorry, what was what was our audience member's question again? Um, yeah, the, the question oh. was, um, does this affect then freedom of speech questions when you get into especially businesses and the duty to recognize? Yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. Um, uh, I know that, that some of the people in the, the wedding business, the photographers and the, and the bakers and the florists are saying that their freedom of speech is implicated because uh, they're involved in a kind of creative artistic endeavor, employing their gifts as um, as expressive artists when they arrange flowers, bake and decorate cakes, um, uh, artfully produce photography, uh, you know, for for a marrying couple. Uh, and, and so they they see their they see their very creativity, which they see is at the center of what they do. Uh, being uh, being coerced, which makes for an interesting uh, wrinkle on free expression. If that's you know, if we consider that protected by the First Amendment. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think a question. The one of the uh, questions from the um, uh, participants here is to to what extent do corporations or persons who own their own business um, to what extent are their what free speech rights do they have in providing a business service? I guess you just mentioned part of it there, um, but is it, are there free speech rights in providing that service uh, mitigated to a degree or tempered by a degree by the requirement to provide services to all members of the paying public? Yeah, yeah, that's... It's a good question. You know, I, I, a young friend of mine who's a, a law professor has done a lot of research in the field of uh, the common law. And um, uh, he pointed out to me recently that under common law norms, before a lot of uh, public accommodations statutes were drafted half a century ago, uh, under the common law, a business owner who held himself forth as doing business with the public, you know, having a store or a shop or a service of some kind that people could walk in, you know, off the street and get served. Uh, such a business owner uh, had a, an absolute right to refuse service to anyone except on unreasonable grounds. Right. <laughs> so that's interesting. The, com the common law is very, you know, it's very much seat of the pants judging, you know, and developing this jurisprudence gradually in case after case over time. And so what the courts had developed was a set of norms that said uh, you, you can refuse service on reasonable grounds, but not unreasonable grounds. So, some, you know, if you hang a 
uh, sign in your shop door window that says no shirts, no shoes, no service because you're running a deli and you want, you know, you want to keep it clean. Uh, you can enforce that. Uh, and even if you don't have such a sign in your window, you could throw somebody out who comes in, you know, half dressed. Uh, you could throw someone out for being obstreperous in your restaurant, for being noisy and disturbing the other patrons. Uh, but the common law, uh, my friend says, never, uh, never thought that irrelevant discriminations among persons, such as racial discriminations, were reasonable grounds for such discrimination, which is why, interestingly enough, the grounds for such discrimination had to be invented and imposed by legislatures in the Jim Crow era South. The segregation norms of the Jim Crow era South were largely the work of legislatures overriding common law norms that uh, forbade unreasonable discriminations and actually uh, not just permitting but requiring people in business to be unreasonably discriminating and to set up separate lunch counters for blacks and whites, separate drinking fountains and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 cut against all those Jim Crow laws, but it also, in a sense, made us forget that uh, before Jim Crow came along, the common law took care of a lot of these problems. And if, if, if that were true, the implication could be, at least, you could see the argument that religious conscience, uh, to use your term, could be a not unreasonable ground for exactly. differentiating one's services. Exactly. Hmm. So um, I think we're since we're getting close to the end of time, I'd like to maybe try to ask a maybe big and broad question um, to see if we can try to summarize a lot of the things we've been talking about here. So, um, you know, if if uh, there were sort of one or two things that could maybe set this area of law a little bit more reasonable um, trajectory and maybe, you know, adhere a little bit more closely to the First Amendment and to the, the idea of free exercise of religion, uh, how would you assess, you know, where those areas of improvement might be from the, the framework of the people who originally um, thought, uh, you know, ratified and proposed the First Amendment to the Constitution? Well, well I would just add, I, I would just reiterate what we said before, which is, to um, some justices, some judges, some legislators still do not understand, I think, a fundamental point that Matt made and I would reiterate, which is the religion clauses are two sides of the same coin. They're really one clause. And they, you can't read them. If you read them so that they're in contradiction or tension with each other, then you, gotta, you don't, don't go back and blame the founders for writing something incorrectly. Um, consider your own interpretation might be a misinterpretation of them. So, for example, I think the notion that religious accommodation, accommodation of religious conscience, um, somehow therefore leads to an establishment of religion, and you've seen that concern among justices, I think that's a bad idea. I think it's contrary to the original meaning of the First Amendment, and frankly, just contrary to um, of the kind of free society uh, envisioned by the Constitution. And that if that means friendliness to religion and religious claims, it certainly does. It doesn't mean, therefore, that religion exempts one from all um, legal requirements or legal duties. But I think to reconceptualize it as not being afraid to make that assertion and that principle 
um, which has really cut across the political spectrum, uh, I think that would be a big and important change. The court has moved that direction among all the members of the court. You see this in the most recent opinions from 2015, unanimous or nearly unanimous opinions on many of these things. Um, so I'm glad to see that. But I think that attitude and uh, opinion needs to work its way through, especially in the legal profession. Yeah, I, uh, I'll, thank, I'll thank Jeff for crediting me with uh, an insight he built beautifully on. Um, and, but I, I want to come back to something he said earlier, and uh, which uh, has to do with the, uh, the way our judges are supposed to hear and honor sincere religious claims of conscience under our current statutory protections of religious freedom. And that is, uh, they're, they're, uh, as Jeff pointed out, they're not to inquire into whether something is or is not central to a religious uh, uh, practice, um, which is to say judges are supposed to remember they're not theologians. When they tackle these religious freedom claims of individuals, that the law impinges, impinges on their conscience. They're not supposed, not supposed to second guess the theological categories of judgment that a person is making who's come into court to claim sincerely that his conscience has, has, uh, has been impinged upon. So the Little Sisters of the Poor, for instance, who, who are, uh, their case is being heard out in the Denver-based Tenth Circuit near you, Joe. Um, uh, they've unfortunately been told by some Tenth Circuit judges basically that they're getting their own theology wrong, <laughs> that uh, that in fact the HHS mandate in requiring them to sign some form so that their employees will get the contraception to which they object, uh, that, 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 they're, that, that they're somehow getting their Catholicism wrong, these, these judges are saying. Uh, and this is, you know, kind of frustrating, indeed infuriating for for the uh, for the little sisters and their defenders in the Catholic world and and beyond the Catholic world, uh, to have judges uh, uh, second guessing the the theological uh, claims of these these Catholic nuns who serve the poor, um, and uh, so I, I think judges judges need to remember that they're when they judge whether sincere claims are substantially burdened, it is their duty to be sure that the burden is real in terms of the functions or operations of the law being understood by the parties. But it is, if they get that right, it is not their duty to say, well, you're just doing your theology wrong and what you think is a burden is not really a burden. Uh, that, uh, that in itself is a kind of judicial violation of the norms of the First Amendment, which say, look, government is separated from religion to the extent that government has no jurisdiction to enter into theological inquiries or answer religious questions. So the, the question that immediately arises for me, given that, you know, admonition to keep the courts from getting into the theological questions when parties bring them under these kinds of uh, cases is, you know, don't the don't the judges have to distinguish still, especially under the common law tradition you just described, between reasonable and unreasonable discriminations, um, the health-oriented ones versus, um, you know, ones like based on racial discrimination, which are unreasonable. But if, if 
reasonable versus unreasonable becomes the dividing line, doesn't that necessitate a judge having to get into these questions to differentiate what's a reasonable discrimination versus an unreasonable one? How, how, how would that work with, um, with the admonition that you bring up here? Well, Joe, uh, Joe, if I can just, one way that would work would be not to consider the reasonableness of the religious opinion or whether one is drawing reasonable conclusions from one's religious opinion. That, that would be second-guessing your own understanding of your religious beliefs, um, which I agree is a very dangerous business for courts to get into. Uh, and I think the court went a long way in Hobbs v. Holt to kind of say, well, I'm not sure you can do that. <laughs> if the guy says he, uh, as a Muslim he needs a half-inch beard, you can't say, well, other Muslims don't need that, so you don't either, you don't understand Islam. I, I think that that is a, 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 yeah, I think the court doesn't like that mode of the judges when they engage in that, and they would agree, I think, with Matt on that in the Tenth Circuit there. Um, the one, one way to judge reasonableness of, of these claims is not to judge the reasonableness of one's conclusions from one's own theolo theological opinions, but to judge the effect that the exemption has on other people. And, and for yes. example, does the exemption lead to a direct violation of other people's um, life or property? You can draw reasonable people, that's a fact-based claim that religions don't get exemption from because they say, well, we have to sacrifice children. Reasonable people, that's a reasonable fact-based um, judgment that you can draw without having to second-guess the truth or falsehood of the religious opinion that inspires that action. I, I, would, I would agree with that. I think that um, uh, you can avoid theological judgment as a judge and still uh, come down with a judgment about uh, the reasonableness of the claim that this theological uh, concern should prevail over a public policy that has some uh, compelling justification for it. Mm -hmm. Okay. We, you know, just just to observe that religion makes claims is not to decide that they win. Right. Right. Okay. Well, we're up on our time. Um, I'd like to just ask both of the panelists whether they have any last comments um, to summarize or wrap up uh, what's been a really excellent discussion from which I've learned a lot. Uh, I'd just say watch watch the Supreme Court's docket. Um, one or more of these uh, Hobby Lobby follow-on cases involving the HHS mandate will be coming down the pike, and and our listeners today uh, uh, should uh, should stay tuned to the the briefs, the oral arguments, and the uh, and the final outcome of of that inevitable case because it's going to be very instructive about how we go forward here. And watch too for uh, same-sex marriage-generated religion problems. They're going to happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I think it's a great, a great opportunity for teachers um, in middle school and especially high school to be able to bring these cases into their classrooms and generate really lively discussion. It's a, it's a great opportunity. It's such an unsettled area of law and of sort of broad constitutional thinking. There are basic agreement on some things, but there's a lot of disagreement even on basic principles and certainly on how those principles and what they mean in particular cases great way to, to bring those into the classroom and use them to generate not only um, discussion and debate, but real constitutional thinking, which is, I think, a, a high duty of ours. 
This is great. Okay, so um, just to wrap up, this has been, uh, for me, just a real joy. I've been writing down notes furiously. I've, I've actually learned a lot from this discussion. I hope our audience has as well. Uh, this is part of a series, as we've mentioned already, of uh, uh, webinars on religion in American history and politics. So please join us for the last, the third and final webinar on this subject. That will be on March the 12th, 2016. Uh, David Tucker and Stephen Knott will be talking about Jefferson and Hamilton on religion and American politics at that webinar. And uh, please, you know, check the teachingamericanhistory.org website for other events that are forthcoming. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Matt Frank and Jeff Sickinga for a lively discussion, and thank you all for being here. Thanks, Thanks very much, Joe. Thanks to everybody. So